Today we are in week two of a six-week series on our values, what's important to us as a church. And we're anchored in 1 Peter, which is a letter in which the voice of God speaks powerfully to the needs of the church today. Our mission as a church is very clear. We exist to worship God, build up believers, and reach others for Christ. That's why we exist. In everything we do, we want to be about those things. Now, our our vision flows out of that purpose. It is to cooperate with God in becoming a worshiping body of biblically equipped believers who effectively influence our world for Christ through purposeful relationships. That's what we want. We're in the process, and God is making us into the people that he wants us to be. But... How you live on a daily basis reveals what's truly important. The proof of the pudding, as they say, is in the eating. And the reality of our values is revealed in the living. Values reveal the heart. Values tell on us. They show what's important. And at Grace, we seek to, go, to grow in Christ through God's Word, which we looked at last week, through learning and obeying the Word of God, what He says, and then prayer, fostering intimacy and and dependence upon God, and families to follow Jesus as biblically-based households, be that an empty nest couple or singles or mom and dad with kids or someone with no kids. And then relationships, loving each other with the love and the grace and the truth that are found in Christ. And service, our theme for this year, to unselfishly serve in God's strength, not our own. And then outreach, sharing the the love of Jesus with both humility and gentleness to a needy world. Now this is what we want to be evident in the way that we live as as a group of people that are um, bound together in our common faith in Christ. And as we grasp these things, we will change. Our our lives will be changed. Our families will be changed. The church will be changed. As we walk in step with the Spirit, uh, God will will change us into who He wants us to be. Now the value that we're looking at today, that we're focusing on, is prayer. Uh, Prayer is talking with God, but it is also so much more than that. Prayer is the practice of attending to God to call ourselves to attention in the presence of God. It's, it's proclaiming our love for Him. It's acknowledging His presence and His love in our lives. It's acknowledging that He is God and we are not. So please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. We're going to look at one, one short verse, though, that says so much. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. It goes like this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of, of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Or literally, uh, the plural, prayers. For the purpose of prayers. Now, this verse basically a- answers the question, why pray? Why should we pray? Now, this verse is found in the context Uh, of two things, it's really sandwiched in the context of two things. One, desiring God's will in the midst of suffering. If you look at chapter 4, it starts with Jesus who has suffered in the flesh and that we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose. That life is hard and we're going to suffer. And that's part of the picture. 
It's part of the program. And it says that we ought to live our lives no longer according to our own desires, but to God's desires according to the will of God. So the idea in in 1 Peter 4 is to live according to the will of God in the midst of suffering. And then there's something else on on the backside of the verse. In verse 8 it says, keep fervent in your love for one another. So there you have it again. In the midst of relationships, in the body of Christ, uh, prayer is found. And so... It asks and answers the question, why pray? And it's commonly thought that 1 Peter's purpose was to encourage the readers to persevere, to keep going, to grow in their trust of God and in their patience and in their endurance in the midst of suffering. Now, 1 Peter has only three direct references to prayer, but each one of them is very strong. Uh, they're powerful ones. I've got to go to the first one. First uh, Peter 3, verse 7, speaking to husbands. And it says that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way to show their wife honor so their prayers won't be hindered. They won't hit a bro- brick wall with their prayers, but that they will actually be able to pray as they treat uh, their wife in a loving manner. Now, the other place is found is First uh, Peter three twelve, where it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears... Attend to their prayer. God listens to the prayer of the righteous, of those who are righteous through faith in Christ. Now, verse 7 here in chapter 4 is in the context of of, uh, 1 Peter 4.19, which is a call for them to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what was right, to keep on doing what was right in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. Now, this is a powerful call to prayer. It's a powerful call to prayer and is also a powerful reason to pray. I want to make two primary observations today on prayer. And the first is this. Prayer fosters an intimate relationship with God. Prayer uh, generates closeness, a close relationship with God. Verse 7 begins, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. What that means is that all the pieces in God's uh, redemption or salvation program have fallen into place except for one. There's one piece missing in the whole picture. But the following things have happened. Creation, the fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the Babylonian captivity and return, the virgin birth of Christ, his sinless life on earth, his his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church, and one piece remains, that we are awaiting the return of our King, Jesus Christ. That's the one piece. The end of all things is near because everything that is supposed to happen has been happening, and the last thing we're waiting for is the return of Jesus Christ, the promised return of Jesus Christ, with whom we have a relationship an intimate relationship through faith in his finished work, through faith in his, his perfect righteousness. We have his promise that he is with us always. But we also have his promise that we await his return, that he will return to take us to be with him where he is. Therefore, it says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, because all these things have happened, All the things that needed to take place have taken place except for one and we are now awaiting the return of Jesus. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 
See, an intimate relationship with Jesus is going to be either helped or hindered by the absence or the presence of these two things. Sound judgment, sober spirit. So what's sound judgment? The Greek word is sophroneo, and it means to be of sound mind. It means to be temperate. It means to be uh, self-controlled. It comes from two words that, that are save and heart. To save heart. And literally, it means to be sane. Be in your right mind. Sanity. To think accurately. It's the idea of, of, uh, of evaluating situations as they happen and the ability to think clearly with maturity because it indicates the presence of wisdom. Sound judgment. The presence of wisdom versus foolishness. Wisdom, which comes from God. Foolishness, which comes from man. In James chapter 1, verse 5, we're told, if you, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask in faith, and he will give you wisdom. But prayer fosters this intimate relationship with God. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is close to all who call upon him. That's the intimacy there. To the one who prays to him sincerely. There's an authentic, uh, sincere, intimate relationship. Because when we think clearly, we can pray. When we're in our right minds, we can pray. So we need the presence of wisdom. Accurate thinking, sound thinking, but we also need a sober spirit. Now, the word spirit is not in the original Greek. Literally, it reads, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Sober indicates the absence of intoxication, not being drunk. Uh, The Greek word is nepho, and it means to be sober, means to be self-controlled. It means not be controlled by intoxicating things. See, prayer is, is negatively hindered by the presence of drunkenness. Uh, What is needed then is sobriety. But not just physically, not just the idea of not ingesting uh, substances that are going to inebriate us, but mentally and and, and spiritually. So don't be intoxicated both mentally and spiritually. Now, we know that we are given, the scriptures tell us, all things by God to freely enjoy. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And the idea is that uh, if you love God, you can do as you please. Love God and do as you please because when you love God first and foremost, you will be doing the things that please Him. You won't be going out of bounds and and going into places where He is not pleased. So there's that idea, but problematic for us is is the question, how far is too far, how much is too much? See, when we're intoxicated by something, um, we don't know where the line is drawn between it's under its rightful place under God or it's now controlling us. And so the lines get blurred. A classic example is Solomon, King Solomon in, in, in 1 Kings. In fact, go, to, go with, to 1 Kings chapter 8 with me. This classic example of the lines being blurred, uh, he started with an intimate relationship with God. Now, what happened with Solomon is that his, his father David had died, and, and Solomon, after a time, became king in his place. And God said to Solomon, you ask me for anything, and I'm going to give it to you. So Solomon asked for, for wisdom, for discretion. Then God says, I'm not just going to give you that. I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. Riches and, 
and knowledge and, and, and everything. And, and it, the scriptures tell us that Solomon was the wisest and richest and most famous man on earth. The whole world was coming after Solomon to, to hear his wisdom. The queen of Sheba was blown away by the wisdom that he had. In fact, she said, they didn't tell me the half of it. Your wisdom and your fame and your wealth exceeds what I had been told. And you go to the beginning of his life and, and he's starting off well. He's going to build a house for God. He inherited that job. His father David wanted to build a house for God and God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed, but your son who rules after you, he will build me a house. So he inherits the job of building God a house and he does it. And, and when they dedicate the temple, it, it's a beautiful picture. In, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, it tells us that that the glory of God filled the house of God. The glory of God fills the house of God. And, and, the, and they couldn't even, the priests couldn't even stand to minister because, because of the cloud of glory that filled the house of God. And Solomon says to the people, you know, God, God said he would dwell in the thick cloud. And I have surely built him a house, a place for his dwelling forever. And then he, he turns around and he faces the people and he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of, of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David has fulfilled it with his hand. He brought it to pass. And he's praying this prayer. And then he does a prayer of dedication. And he says in verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly. He lifts his hands to heaven and he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth keeping covenant and loving kindness. And he goes on and on about how great God is. See, he had an intimate relationship with God. He loved God. All was well. But something happened. Something happened in his heart. Something happened in his soul. And he turned away from God. In fact, look at 1 Kings chapter 11. He was intimate with God and then, and then he turned away. It says in, in verse 1 that King Solomon loved many foreign women al- along with the daughter of Pharaoh, his wife. And, and he was going against what God had said when he said, don't associate with, with those tribes. They're going to turn your heart away after other gods. Don't go there. But see, it says that the scriptures tell us that Solomon held fast to them in love and his wives, when he got old, turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You see, Solomon started out with a heart totally devoted to God, pleasing to God, but something happened in his heart, something happened in his soul, and he turned away. He got intoxicated with things that weren't supposed to be intoxicating in his life. It says that the Lord was angry with him, and then... There were consequences, not in his day, but in the next generation. What are you under the influence of? See, be sober doesn't mean just don't, be, don't get drunk physically, but also since the phrases, if going back to 1 Peter 4, the phrases before and after this verse have to do with attitudes of the mind and of the heart. It's the idea of not letting the mind wander into mental intoxication or addiction, which hinders spiritual alertness, or even laziness of the mind that leads into sin by, by carelessness or, or even just by default. 
You see, when not kept in proper perspective, under God, things become intoxicating to us. Work, family, relationships, possessions, or money, or the lack thereof. Recreation, reputation, intellectual pursuits, authority, control, and good things that take precedence over important things become bad for us. They ruin our souls. They crowd out prayer. When we're intoxicated with things of the world, we're not praying. So you're overcome by things that cloud your thinking, your senses. Because when you're drunk, your senses are clouded. You don't have sound judgment. You don't have a sober spirit. And spiritually speaking, that's what happens. Interestingly, the same word is used in chapter 4, verse 7, for spiritual alertness in prayer that is used in chapter 5, verse 8, for resisting the devil. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be of sober spirit. Literally, be of sober, soberness. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him, standing firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. Don't go there. But see, the devil knows how easy it is for Christians to become intoxicated with things that were supposed to be good and then they lose their spiritual concentration, they lose their focus on God through the intoxicating elements in this world. Why do you think believers are to stand together in unity rather than fighting against one another? Because we are in a very real battle and it's not just sometimes, it is all the time. In fact, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. Paul is talking about a a spiritual battle that is raging at all moments. In fact, it is raging right now as I speak. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this in verse 3, We walk according to the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. There are things raised up against the knowledge of God. And he says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. Sound thinking. Sober spirit. You see, many believers experience uh, a great deal of pain in their lives and are unable to find comfort because they're under the influence of harmful things. They're inebriated by harmful things. And so your soul gets out of balance. You find you don't have the spiritual backbone and the poise that comes from grace. And you wonder what happened. And what it takes, free, takes to break free is, is simple repentance. Just simple repentance of turning back to God. You come to God on the basis of, of, his, of his faithful covenant love, of his of His steadfast commitment to you. You come to a father whose eyes well up with tears because he loves you so much when you come into his presence. You parents know what I'm talking about. Your kids can break your hearts. Your kids can do things to you that you never thought imaginable. Some of you have had your kids do things to you and inflict pain upon you that you never thought you'd feel. But you love them. You pray for them. But what does it take for them to come back? What does it take for that relationship to be restored? 
So you are alert and you are ready for them to come back to you. And all it takes is for them to walk through the door with humility and, and say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. That's what it takes. You're alert and you're ready for them to come back to you. But God is even more alert and ready for us to come back to Him. When we've been intoxicated by things of the world, when we have our thinking clouded and we can't think straight and we can't pray, God is even more alert and ready for us to come to Him. Because we're all prodigals. We all go our own way. We're all prone to wander. But He absolutely loves you in spite of anything you have done. He absolutely loves you. And you may, you may be uh, distraught over stuff you have done. You might be grieved over self-inflicted pain. Go to him right now in prayer. Tell him all about it. See, come needy and he restores your soul. He gives you wisdom. He, he sobers you up. He restores intimacy through prayer. The Lord is near to those who call upon him with a sincere heart. You see, prayer fosters and even restores an intimate relationship with God. Now, the second thing is that prayer fosters an ongoing dependence on God. An ongoing dependence on God. Verse 7 ends with, for the purpose of prayer. See, the end of all things is near. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, we need to be of sound mind and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer literally for the purpose of prayers plural it's this idea of specific individual prayers throughout the day the meaning of the phrase for the purpose of prayer is not merely as the niv puts it so that you can pray but this the the, the meaning is this in order that you may pray more effectively in order that you may pray more appropriately That you may may pray most effectively and most appropriately. Be of sound mind, sober spirit, so you can pray the way God wants you to pray. See, one of the things we hold as a high value here at Grace is the realization that the presence of God in the life of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl makes all the difference in the world. Uh, The presence of God in the midst of a family, in the midst of a group of people that are doing life together, makes all the difference in the world makes a huge difference to the positive. Because if you're living for the glory of God, what God does in the midst of that is He makes life expand. He makes life grow. And it is, it is challenging and it is, it is producing something beautiful in us and through us. And that's what happens when we live for the glory of God. But you live for yourself, you live for your own glory, no matter how good things on earth get, life will have a way of contracting Life will have a way of becoming very uninteresting, very, uh, very limiting and very uninspiring because it's a dead end to live for yourself. But by praying to God, we are admitting our dependence on Him. We are acknowledging our need for God. We are saying, you're God, I'm not, and I need you. Now that brings up several issues. First is a question. If God already knows what we're going to pray, why should we even pray? 
Psalm 139 verse 4 says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So if God already knows, maybe we don't need to even say a word. We just kind of say, Dear Lord, you already know. Amen. If God already knows. But some say that since God has blessed believers with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ, that there is no need to pray. That is faulty reasoning. Jesus said man ought always to pray and never lose heart. Luke 18.1. The Holy Spirit said through Paul, pray about everything. Philippians 4.6. He also said, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. So you've got to keep on praying because God says to. Many scriptures encourage us to pray about all the things that touch our daily life. To keep on praying. So why pray? Because God says to pray. To do that. Look at Matthew chapter 6 with me. Matthew chapter 6. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus. Speaking about prayer. Matthew chapter 6 and uh, verse 7. He says, when you are praying, he is, he He's assuming that you're going to be praying. When you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And Jesus is saying, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, but you need to ask Him. Go, ask, keep asking. When you pray. Another question is, does, does prayer change anything? Does prayer really change anything? Sometimes I feel like I'm praying and it just falls to the ground. I mean, does anything really happen when I pray? Yes and no. Yes and no. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. What do you mean? Well, sometimes prayer changes things. But all the time, God changes our hearts when we pray. Our circumstances might not change, but our hearts always change when we pray. In Hezekiah's case, prayer changed things. God told him, it's time to die. Hezekiah prayed. God gave him 15 more years, added on to his life. In Paul's situation, things didn't change. He, he went to God three times and said, please heal me. And God said, no. Things didn't change. But Paul's heart, his attitude towards the thorn in the flesh and towards God changed when he saw that God's grace was sufficient for him. God always changes our hearts. But situations don't always change. Does God answer a Christian's prayer all the time? Yes. My stock answer is... is, uh, yeah, you can have one of three answers. Yes, no, or wait. I like the way that Layman Strauss puts it in his book, uh, Sense and Nonsense About Prayer. He says, uh, sometimes you get a direct answer, sometimes a, de- a deferred answer, and sometimes a-, a totally different answer. Sometimes you get a-, a direct answer. You pray specifically for something, and immediately it happens. You say, praise God. Look what God did. But sometimes you get a deferred answer, a delayed answer. The request is granted. 
But the outcome doesn't come about till later. The, the need was real. The request was valid, but the timing was off. God's timing is perfect. So sometimes the answer is, is deferred or delayed. God knows best. His timing's perfect. And sometimes you get to a completely different answer than what you were praying about. We don't know how to pray as we ought to, Romans 8 tells us. We don't know how to pray as we ought to, so the Holy Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And sometimes we just pray for things that God doesn't want us to pray for. It's not in his will. Paul thought his need was for healing from the thorn in the flesh. His need was grace and the sufficiency of God's grace. Now this uh, idea of, of, of that prayer is uh, a developer of a dependence upon God that it goes ongoing it brings up another issue and that of attitude. Our attitude when we're praying. If there's an attitude that helps prayer be more effective, you want that. You want it in abundance. And the attitude is humility. It's going to be either arrogance or humility when we come to God. Go to Luke 18 with me. Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable... Verse 9, he told them a parable, and here's who he was talking to. He was talking to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Wow, I do so many good things, and I'm so great, God owes me. And they viewed others with contempt. I've done so many things for God, and he owes me, and they are bad, and I am good. And so he tells them this parable. He says, two men go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, and one's a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands and he, he prays, it says, to himself. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer. I'm sure glad I'm not like him. I, I tithe, I fast, I do all these things for you, God. What's his problem? Now here's the tax collector, not even willing to come near to God, stands off at a distance, not even willing to, to lift his eyes to heaven, and he says this, he says, God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. He's humble. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that man went, went to his house justified. That man went to his house in right standing with God rather than the other, because whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Man, that is huge. Humility. Humility is what God wants. See, it's not, I'm glad I'm not like him. It's, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Because when we are thinking clearly, we know the depths of our own hearts. <laughs> when we're sober-minded, and we're not inebriated by the things of this world, we know what we're really like. We know our tendencies. We know our hearts. Are you on your knees or are you pointing fingers? Man, I've got to bring you to a verse I brought you to before, but 1 Peter 3, 7. It says here that you've got to live with your wife in an understanding way or your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers will hit a brick wall. Your prayers will fall to the ground. So we are called to live in a loving relationship with our spouse because prayer is an inward discipline. It comes out in words. 
But it begins with our heart. Our heart has got to be right before God. It comes out in our words, but it's rooted in our souls. Our attitudes are revealed in prayer. And then there's that little thing called motive. Why we pray. Why do you pray? Go back to Matthew 6 with me, if you will. Matthew 6. I want to show you something else that Jesus said. Verse 1. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. He goes on to say in verse 5, When you pray, remember, you're going to be praying, so when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who like to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. This verse is not saying you can't stand when you pray or that you can't stand on a street corner and pray or pray in public. It says don't do it so people will see you and think, wow, you're awesome. See, when we're praying, we're saying, wow, God, you're awesome. And so don't do it to be seen. James chapter 4. In verse 3. James just said, you don't have because you don't ask. You need to ask. But then he says in verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask for the wrong reasons. And so, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Don't be so inebriated. Don't be so caught up. Don't be so overcome by the things that, that are so tempting to be overcome by. Do We have a prayer room at Grace now. It's a place to pray. You can pray anywhere you want. But it's a place to go and pray. But it's also a reminder to pray. Well, did you know that this room we're sitting in right now is a place to worship? <gasps> we're setting up a place to worship? Oh, no. People are going to see us and think that we're, oh, uh, no. We're coming here to attend to God. And if you go in there, you've got to go to attend to God, not because people will know you're there. But I'll tell you what, having a place reserved is a reminder to pray. See, we put our time and our resources and our effort to what is important to us. And God wants us to pray. And as we pray, he wants us to keep two things in mind. See, this call to prayer is a call to action. It's a call to action that Christians who realize that Jesus is coming back ought to live in a certain way. To keep sane and sober. To realize that they ought to act wisely. To be self-controlled, which enables you to pray. And as you do, keep these two things in mind. The first one is be consistent. Pray all the time. It's what Jesus is pointing to when he says, when you pray. And then in Matthew 7, in 7 through 11, he said, and keep praying, and keep asking, and keep seeking, and keep knocking. You're not going to, God is saying, wear me out with your prayers, because you're not going to wear me out. Because he says, be persistent too. Be consistent and be persistent. If you would, go back to Luke 18 with me for a moment. There's something else he told them. Another parable that he said. And the, and the reason he told this parable was that they would always pray and not lose heart. To keep on praying, to be persistent in it. He said there was a, a, a judge that lived in a city and he did not fear God. And there was a widow that kept coming to him and asking for legal protection. And he wouldn't help her. And she kept asking. She kept saying, please help me. And finally, she wore him down to the point where he said, I'll help you. But God is saying, keep going. Keep asking. 
Keep coming to me in faith. Keep believing. We're to be alert to the events of life and evaluate them accordingly and correctly so that we can pray intelligently. When, when doing everything you do on a daily basis, go through the day alert to the things that are happening and be praying throughout the day. See, what, what 4-7 teaches us can be put into practice in many ways every day, very practically. You're interacting with a friend or a colleague. You can be praying as you're conversing with them, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, what should I say next? You, you're on the way to a, an important meeting and you're praying, God, make this what you want it to be. You're going through a really tough time and you, you lay it out before God. Someone writes you a, a note that's, that's nasty, that's, that's hateful, and you, you spread it out before God and say, God, what do you want me? How would you like me to respond? What would you like me to do, God? What's your will in this? You're reading the newspaper. Pray about what you read. You're watching the news. Pray about those things. You, you, you pass a crash on the highway. Pray for the people. Pray. Pray. And so on and so forth. You're traveling to work. You're traveling to school. Pray. Here's an interesting one. Angels broadcaster uh, Rex Hudler says he prays before every game. Here's what he says. Before every game, I pray and thank God that I have a job I love and, and that is my passion. And he said, secondly, I pray that God will watch my tongue that nothing harmful comes out of my mouth. I like that. See, prayer is about making God obvious. Prayer is about um, making his prominence evident to ourselves and to those around us. Don't make it an opening and closing ceremony thing. Oh, let's start in prayer so we can get on to the real business. It's an ongoing conversation with a friend who just happens to be the king of the universe, who just happens to be God Almighty. And so... It should be a permeating influence. You know I like garlic. And I love it when it permeates, especially when it comes out of my pores because I've eaten so much. No one else likes that. But prayer ought to be infused into everything. The word of God should be coming out of our pores and prayer should be just infused into everything we do. And talk with him about everything like you would a good friend. You see, prayer is never the first word. Prayer is always the second word. See, prayer is human words to, uh, addressed to God. Never initiating. God initiates. His word is the first word. So you come to the word of God and you attend to God in terms of what he has done and what he has said throughout the ages. But you come to God in prayer and, and you stand at attention before God. See, we're responding to God. Prayer is not primarily requests. It is response. Response to who God is and what he does. God has the first word. So you praise God for who he is. You thank him for who he is. You confess your sins to him. And then you bring your needs and the needs of others to him. Because he's God. You talk with God. We're coming now to a, a, a table. But I want to show you a picture first of what Jesus did before he, he died on the cross for the sins of the world. If you would, go to Matthew chapter 26 with me. Matthew 26 and verse 36. They went to a garden. The garden of Gethsemane. 
And immediately you think prayer when you think Gethsemane because that's the place that Jesus prayed. And, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and he began, it says, to be grieved and distressed. And he said to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And so Jesus went a little beyond them and he fell on his face. And he prayed, God the Son, prayed to God the Father. You can close your eyes when you pray. You can bow your head when you pray. You can fall on your face when you pray. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, postures in Scripture about prayer. But Jesus fell on his face. God the Son fell on his face and he prayed to God the Father and he said, My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And and Jesus came back to the disciples and he found them asleep. He says to them, said to Peter, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Jesus went again away a second time and he prayed again. And he said, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He knew he was going to the cross. That was the purpose of his coming to earth. And so he comes again and found his disciples sleeping. Again. This time he didn't wake them up. He just let them keep sleeping. And, and he went and prayed a third time. And he prayed the same thing as the other time. And then he came back to them and he said, are you still sleeping? Are you still resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And they got up from there. And he was betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And he was abused by them. And he was hung on a cross by them. And he died. And then he was buried. And then he came back to life. And this table that we come to today signifies what Jesus did. So we come to this table and we come just the same way that tax collector came. With humble hearts. See, there is no room for pride at this table. No room at all. In fact, the scriptures tell us that that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's no place for pride at this table. We come to this table just like that tax collector and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But there's something else we come saying. We come saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and praise Jesus for what you've done. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. So we come feeling bad about our own sin, but, but totally amazed at what Jesus did. Thank you, Jesus. You see, before Jesus went out into the, into the garden to pray, he went into the upper room. And when he was there, and gentlemen, come on up. When he was there, they were eating a meal. And he took bread, and he broke it. He blessed it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. He's saying, my body is going to be broken, and it's for your life. Your sins are bringing you death, but, but this is for your life. This is for your life. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to pass the bread, and please 
hold on to it because we're going to partake together. We're going we're to celebrate what Jesus did.